pages 8 through 10 this morning and your sermon in your bulletin and include the sermon outline and text. We have been looking at the gospel according to Mark and we have been looking at two primary questions. Who is this man, this Jesus, this one who appears out of the wilderness, who heals, who teaches, and who as some would say is the Messiah? And secondly, what kind of kingdom is he bringing in? If he is a king, if he is a Messiah, what sort of things are important to him and how different it is than the rest of the world's ideas? We encounter this today as we look at one of the great miracles of Jesus' ministry, the feeding of the multitude. I haven't done an official survey, but I believe this particular miracle is more um, revered or appreciated by commentaries, writers of commentaries and theologians than any other one. I I couldn't begin to tell you why that is. There are many facets of, of theological truth here. But uh, if I would say if you ask seminary professors and theologians what's their favorite miracle of Jesus besides the resurrection, they might say this one. It surely seems in their writings that they have a lot of respect and interest in it, even after all these years. The story is familiar to us. We pick it up in chapter 6 of Mark, just after John the Baptist has been killed. And we read that the apostles gathered around Jesus to, and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it is already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked, go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. This is God's word. Let us pray. O Lord, continue to break the bread of life for us, this word which you have given, that you may in that we may ingest it into our souls and we may grow and profit thereby. Nourish and feed us, we pray this day, in Jesus' name. Amen. So he did it. He fed all of them. One of the things the commentators like to note is that if there were 5,000 men, there were probably fifteen to 20,000 people there. 
Lots and lots of folks, a whole group. And in this sort of remote area, it was quite a gathering of people, and it was a testimony not to their hunger so much as to their interest in Jesus. We're told from this, this of course, is included in several of the, of the uh, Gospels, and we're told that, the, that uh, this was in the hill country, and we learn from our history that this was one of the places where resistance to Rome was the most severe, not, as you might think, in Capernaum, or in Jerusalem, where the Romans were seated in authority, but in the countryside, there was great resistance. So a huge crowd comes, and John tells us in chapter 6 that the reason they came was they wanted to take him by force to make him king. They had heard about him, they had approached him on other occasions about being king, and he said, this is not what I intend to do. He would pass through the crowd unnoticed, he would elude them. But part of the reason this crowd had come, noticing where the disciples were going, as we read, was to make him king by force, which means they came for themselves. They had had enough of the Romans. They had had all they could stand of the, what they considered injustice and unfairness and heavy-handedness of the Roman authority. John the Baptist had recently been murdered by a vile man, Herod, And it seems that the people are more furious than ever against Rome. And they're wildly interested in Jesus. The crowds are coming. He's healing them. He's teaching them. He's telling them about this new kingdom. The kingdom of God is like. He's doing parables. And the people are high in their hopes. The revolution, perhaps, is about to take place. Maybe now and finally the answer of 400 years of silence since the days of Malachi will be fulfilled and John the Baptist truly was preparing the way for one who would be the Messiah. Jesus' response is one of sadness almost touched in his heart by the, by the multitude gathered there I suppose for the wrong reason. And Mark quotes uh, rather obscure section of Numbers 27 when he says that Jesus looked upon them as a sheep without a shepherd. Now he surely knew they wanted to make him the shepherd. They wanted to follow him wherever he might lead them, particularly against the Roman authorities. Who will lead them? And how will I lead them must have been among his questions. Certainly that was the question on Moses' mind, as he was finishing his work and turning things over to Joshua, they are like a sheep without a shepherd. Jesus responds by teaching them. They have come seeking some kind of action, some kind of formation, some kind of movement. And he responds by talking. Not even, as far as we know, doing any miracles, at least initially. He gives them not weapons training and military tactics or a strategic vision for what they're about to accomplish over time. Instead, he gives them bread and his teachings. And he wants to bring in the revolution they are seeking on his terms. It is a revolution not of political and military overthrow, but of something else. It seems clear that he disavows the zealot model of liberation, but he does offer freedom. 
The zealot model pursues him and pursues him and pursues him until the last week of his life, the last couple of days of his life, when the crowd says, give us Barabbas. Remember, he was an insurrectionist. He wanted to overthrow the Roman authorities and had been placed in prison because he was a violent insurrectionist. So these pleas from the crowd are echoing around Jesus the whole time he's teaching and the whole time he is, he is leading and, and talking about the revolution he wants to bring in and the kingdom of God. And it is emphatically not a violent military overthrow or insurrection. He says, I bring life, and he gives them two things, bread, as we see, and the word. He responds to their needs that way. Matthew 4, when, when, when uh, dealing with the devil, he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. As we'll see as we get into Mark a little further, Jesus lived and breathed the Word of God. He didn't just hold it up there as a standard, as something to be followed and learned, but he sustained himself by it. And we know that on the cross he quoted the Scriptures. We know that in the midst of temptation he relied upon them. And that throughout his life, although we don't know all of his private and inner thoughts, surely as much as he referred to the Word of God, it must have sustained him. And even here, an obscure portion in Numbers 27, Mark notes, probably through Peter's influence, and some comment by the Lord, they look like a sheep without a shepherd. They have no one to lead them. And the way they want to go is the wrong way. Jesus says, secondly, in John 6, do not work for food alone that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. So I want to give you bread and I want to give you life here. And I want you to remember this, he says. And of course, he did it twice, once to the 4,000, once to the 5,000, and we have not forgotten. What I think he means by this is that you and I have a hunger deep within us that is deeper than a physical hunger. And it's a hunger that bread cannot fill. Give us everything that we want. Make a list of ten things that you've got to have. And if God gave you every single one of them, your need would still be there for him. Our inner and deepest needs cannot be satisfied by outward success or the uh, accumulation of acclaim or recognition or things. It just can't be. And every wealthy person, is Prince mentioned today, who, who, who gets these things, seems to want more of something else or not be able to handle the accumulation of these things. We have a hunger that bread cannot fill. And if we don't get that hunger filled by him, we'll starve forever. There'll be a cosmic future destiny that is empty and devoid of meaning and joy. Jesus spoke a lot about heaven and hell. He doesn't hear. But without this food, without this word, without this sustenance, we will not be able to live for all eternity. So we have a daily hunger only Jesus can fill. This is a spectacular miracle. I mean, it tells us in another place that the boy is just a little boy's lunch. Five loaves and two fish. 
a small amount of food for a huge amount of people. So let's take say a word just a moment here aside on his miracles and what they mean to us. Jesus gives us bread, which is life, and does it miraculously. But why this miracle? I say the main point of this miracle and his miracles, I still have a question about walking on water, but all the other miracles that I could go through this week is not to get across the fact of his power alone, but to show the, the redemptive purpose of his power. His miracles are not primarily suspensions of the natural order. They are restorations of the natural order. There was a time when Adam and Eve had all they could eat and were never hungry. There was a day when God provided for his people fully and completely as in the wilderness and they were never hungry. He wants to get back to that day. He's looking for that day. And he is no happier with this sinful world than we are. When he sees disease, he doesn't like it. He doesn't think, oh, well, I'm going to live forever, so it doesn't bother me. His heart is broken by the brokenness that disease brings, relationally, and so many other ways. His miracles point back to the world as it was, when there was no poverty, no disease, no hunger, no death, no leprosy. He wants to get back to that day. And he knows that deep within us there's a longing there too. Wouldn't it be great if no one was sick? Wouldn't it be wonderful if no one was mean and unjust? Wouldn't it be terrific if everybody told the truth and was sustained in their food and in their spiritual needs completely? He wants to get back to that day. That day was lost in Eden, and we're headed back there now. A day is coming, he says, when all will be restored. The hope for the future is bread for your souls. They weren't expecting this. They were hoping that by the power of suggestion and the offer of fame and acclaim and allegiance that he would turn to their agenda and lead them in some kind of a political military revolution against the Romans. And then there's this little turning to his disciples. They've just been very busy. They've been very successful, as it says in the opening verses of this passage. They've Although John the Baptist hasn't met with a happy circumstance, they've been seeing God working, and there's been a tremendous response. And, and in fact, the people not only recognize Jesus, but they recognize the disciples, and they say, they're going somewhere, let's follow them. These people are important. They're close associates of the Messiah or the possible king. And so Jesus talks to them on and on. He's leading a conference. I should say it's dinner time. It's late in the day now. And his, and his disciples suggest, okay, let's, let's conclude the conference and let's tell them it's dinner on their own. A, a, a rational suggestion. I mean, who has the money for such things? Who has the logistics for such things? And it's getting late in the day. How could we have time to do it? Jesus says, you feed them. You feed them. Well, this, uh, they respond rather impertinently. They said, in a, in a sense, they said, don't be ridiculous. What are you talking about? Are you crazy? Are you, what you're asking for 
can't be done. And you want us to do it? You want us to bear the weight of, of failure here when no normal person could do this? No, no normal circumstance can do what you ask? They're right in the place of so many of us and so many of the characters in the scriptures called to do something that they feel is impossible. Samuel says, someone must face this Philistine. And all the sons of Jesse and all the others say, not me. What you're asking for is impossible. Can't be done. It's the end of us. He can defeat all of us with his army. The disciples are in that same circumstance. Until you see that what I am calling you to do is impossible, you are unqualified to be a part of it. Now, this isn't how one normally gains a revolution. Normally, when one gains a revolution, one says, you see the Bastille there? That prison of injustice and an emblem of the king? We are going to take it, and we're going to break down the doors, and we're going to win. And we can do it. And they did. You see that Tsar family there in the middle of Moscow? We are going to de defeat them. We're going to kill them and we're going to overthrow the government. And they did. But Jesus is saying, we can't do it and you can't do it. And until you see that you can't do it, you can't be a part of my kingdom. I have a kingdom not of the qualified and the capable. I have a kingdom of the unqualified. And his disciples get it right when they say at one point later in, his, in the New Testament, we are only unprofitable servants. That's right. We are unqualified. Jesus then proceeds to use the people's food. He takes what they have. He takes what's there. He doesn't call it up on trays from heaven, but their food is obviously not enough. In fact, it's hard to see how that many men could distribute the food if it was there to that many people. But only as they begin does Jesus actually meet their needs. You see, step one, they see that it's impossible. Step two, they begin to obey him, and all of a sudden, the sea parts. The giant falls. There's a ram in the thicket instead of Isaac having to be sacrificed. You start and you proceed and you see God opening the way. The work is impossible, but he provides a miracle to make them listen. We are all too broken and resistant without a miraculous power to open our eyes. Open your eyes and Jesus will do this restorative work. Now, this is exactly what they don't tell you in the Westerns on television. Used to be a day when there were a lot of movies that were Westerns. And they usually had, they had a number of themes in them, but one of the themes was the power in the town is at the end of the gun. And the last thing we need is a street, at the end of the street is a church of people praying. What we need is a gunslinger a marshal. We need somebody who can set things right, right? And so Clint Eastwood and John Wayne, they make fun of the preacher. 
They make fun of the praying people. John A. Wayne calls them pilgrims. Clinton, one movie, calls them psalm singers. They're not going to solve the bad guys. They're not going to clean up the town. They're ineffective. They're not what we need. We need a hired gun. We need a new marshal. We need a posse. We need to take things into our own hands. But Jesus calls us to a different kind of revolution with different kind of people who don't shoot straight. Unqualified people. People who, like this little boy, offer their lunch and turn out to be the the savior of the day. And so only those who know they are inadequate in this kingdom are adequate. This is extremely significant. It's a message given over and over and over again. The least of the sons of Jesse was David. The youngest, the smallest, the most vulnerable. The least of the nations was Israel. They had many powerful neighbors, but God protected and used and sustained them. The kingdom of heaven is like the mustard seed, the smallest of the seeds, unimpressive. And yet that's what God will use to build his great kingdom in which the birds of the air will find their rest. So only those who know they're inadequate are inadequate. And the disciples have to learn this lesson at this point in their instruction, in in their seminary training. They have to learn that if it's going to happen, it's not by them and by their wisdom. It's not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Only those who know they are inadequate are adequate. You know that as a servant of the Lord, that you are completely dependent upon him. That you are desperately wicked and your heart is deceitful and that apart from it you can do nothing. The disciples are learning that. And one of the great miracles here is the miracle that's taking place in the disciples' lives as they begin to learn from Jesus. This is a different kind of revolution, a different kind of kingdom. This is an upside-down kingdom where the weak are strong, where less is more, where the little are made great by his power. Now finally, revolutions begin with violence usually. I've already mentioned the Bastille and the assassination of the Tsarist family. We had our own Lexington and Concord. Guns were fired. Battles were engaged. This revolution begins with a prayer. Have the people sit down. And so they sat down. And he offers a blessing. And he breaks the bread. This is repeated, of course, magnificently in the upper room. Where the same thing happens on a smaller scale. He blesses the meal and he breaks the bread. Saying, I'm the ultimate Moses, now come to lead the ultimate Exodus. I am the shepherd who will lead these sheep. And so at Calvary, he blessed them. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then he broke. Not them, but himself for us. 
didn't take the bread and break it, didn't take the Romans and break them, didn't take the crowds and the ungrateful disciples and break them, he broke himself. As a substitute, he said, if the bread stays whole, then I die. But if it broke, I live, and he disintegrates. He was torn to pieces so we could become whole. If he had stayed whole, we would have died. But he was broken for you. And every time since then, as he enjoined his people to have communion services and to remember what he did, the central act of that communion service, in addition to the blessing, is the breaking of the bread. Technically called the fraction section of the communion or the mass. It is that moment when he, as our bread, was broken for us. And even so, he blesses not only the bread, but he blesses his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. If you and I can see his life broken for us and join this upside-down kingdom, we'll become someone who subverts the prevailing me-first culture by serving. So what can I do in response? I can begin to appreciate that this Messiah and this King is leading in a different direction. He really is. He meant it when he said that he who would be the greatest among you must be the least. That if you want to come after me, you take up your cross. He meant it when he said The last shall be first. He meant it when he said, I'm putting in a different kind of kingdom. Put away your sword. My kingdom is not of this world in that sense. He meant it when he said, only the unqualified are qualified. And so when we give, when we tithe, when we invest in his kingdom, we are bringing his healing We are carrying forth his word. We are becoming more vulnerable than we would otherwise be, but we are bringing in a revolution by unqualified, unprofitable servants. It means that our relationships are characterized by forgiveness. There's no stewing or bitterness. And we become gradually more emotionally stable. The most destructive things we can do is to be unforgiving, bitter, and resentful. The most destructive things we can do, not to the people for whom they are intended, but to us. Stewing, bitterness, resentment, unforgiving spirit eats us alive. Rots us from the inside out. Right? And if we don't follow this, this is, as I say, he means what he says, then we're not his kind of revolutionary. We're still trying to bring the kingdom in this world in our way and do it our way. And inside, we are still in bondage to fears and a need for acceptance and a need for whatever it is that other people have or we think they have. So this isn't easy. I suppose one would say the easy thing would have been for Jesus to say, okay, yeah, let's go tear down the Romans. Okay, we'll do what you want to do. Get your knives and your, gun, your uh, stones and your sticks and we'll go. 
I don't know if that would have been easier, but they wanted him to, and it was certainly easier for them. They wanted to make him king by force so that they could force him to lead them against the Romans and do what they wanted. And he said, what you want is not what you need. I'm smarter than you are. I know what you need. Listen to me. I will give you bread that make you never hunger again. I will give you water that you'll never thirst again. I will give you my spirit that you'll never be lonely again. And so, Jesus was a revolutionary. A powerful one who to this day continues to change lives of people of every tribe and nation. Think of it. Just in Anne Arundel County this morning, how many people, 15%, 10%, got up and came to church on their own? No one compelled them, unless they were little and their parents brought them. This church and churches all over the county, people have come to hear and to meet with each other around the Word of God, to break the bread of life. He died over 2,000 years ago. That's power. That's a non-compelling, not a point of the gun or end of the sword power that is life-changing. He's a true revolutionary. The French Revolution is over. The Russian Revolution has been superseded by whatever it is now. But his revolution continues because he really does bring change, right? He really does do things inside of us that are transformative. That's because he's real. He's alive. He's triumphed over the grave and he's coming back. In the meantime, we feast on the loaves and the fishes of his grace. Let us pray. This day, O Lord, we again feel inadequate to the task to which you're calling us to trust you to follow you, to say no to ourselves and take up our cross and daily come after you. We find that we are inadequate to such things, but we thank you that you use us in our inadequacy, that you use us in our weakness as your vessels to once again teach us that it's not about us. It's not about what we are and what we do. It's about you. And I pray that you will expand your influence in Anne Arundel County. That there will be more and more people in church in the days to come and gathering for Bible studies and home fellowship groups and prayer meetings. So that this revolution can continue and be even more manifest in this day and time. In the meantime, help us not to believe the John Waynes and the Clint Eastwoods who say revolution only comes at the point of a gun or a, bear or a spear. For truly, Jesus has changed our lives. And we thank you. In his name we pray. Amen.